Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Bruce Marks helps buyers finance M&A transactions. He brings over 35 years of SBA lending experience with the past nine years focused solely on mergers and acquisitions lending. Mr. Marks works with financial buyers, searchers, and corporate buyers seeking financing for business acquisition transactions. He specializes in transactions with enterprise values between three and $8 million, having closed on over 1,200 SBA transactions. He's employed by First Bank of the Lake, a community bank based in Osage Beach, Missouri, and FBOL is a national PLP lender. Over the last nine years, Mr. Marks has personally assisted buyers providing over $325 million in SBA 7A loans to facilitate lower middle market M&A transactions. He's got all kinds of great credentials. You can read the rest of the full bio on the site. He also owned and operated a small business consulting firm for 13 years, and he eventually sold that, returning to the banking business. So he's definitely got personal deal experience and obviously, I mean, a huge number of financing deals under your belt. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Corey. I'm really excited about being here and having the opportunity to interact with you and you know share some hopefully knowledge with your audience. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So, Bruce, before we get into all these deals you're doing now and how you help people, and how you help them fund M&A transactions. I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I am sure a, you know, an SBA, an M&A, a search fund, and probably those words weren't in your vocabulary, but tell me, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, no, I don't even think those words that yeah, were even around back then, right? You know, it's interesting. I, I grew up in a household where my dad had his own business. So- yeah. You know, I grew up with the small business mentality. I, at 13 years old, started working for my dad uh, in his, he had a prime meat grocery store. So it was really a, a catered yeah. type of operation, understood really small business. We competed against the large supermarkets and he just, he, he ran a, a phenomenal operation, he was a great small business owner. So I knew that I always wanted to be into to small business lending and, and helping small businesses because it's truly what I, what I grew up doing. Yeah. Uh, went to school, uh, went to school for, for business, got an undergraduate degree in finance, got an MBA degree in finance. And so I think pretty much from an early age, Corey, I, I, my destiny was pretty much set for me. Love it. Love it. And Another question looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could be something small when you were a kid or something early in your career, but anything that comes to your mind as a deal. I remember I had started out in banking. I started out on the investment management side. Yep. And 
after doing that for five years, I got an opportunity to see what it's like to get formally credit trained to try to really understand transactions that I was going to look at from an investment standpoint. I remember when I was 13 years old, after I started working with my dad, back then I had gotten a Quotron machine and had it at my desk at home. And was actually at 13 years old. At 13. At 13, buying and selling for my dad's portfolio. And so, I mean, it was just crazy. So after I graduated college and I went into the banking and I was doing the, the investment management side and I got the opportunity to go into small business financing, there was a gentleman and he was a military person and he had come out of the service and he just had this true passion. He wanted to open up a barbecue type restaurant. Okay. And I just remember that deal because it was probably one of the first deals that I did. But I just remember that the passion for doing this and it was almost like Bubba Gump Shrimp. I mean, about COVID, (laughs) you know, like, I mean, literally that was kind of the way it was. And he opened up this restaurant. It was called, I'll never forget, it was called Mississippi Suites. And I helped facilitate getting him an SBA to, to open up his business. And it was just so meaningful for me to help this person basically live his dream of, mm-hmm. of opening up a restaurant. And it yeah. was really early on in my career, but it's one that has stuck with me you know, for 35 years, in fact, doing this, because it was just so meaningful and then understanding. And I know it sounds kind of corny, if you will, but the SBA was starting back in 52. And the the notion of it was, we're going to help small businesses that may not be able to get traditional bank financing. Yep. And we're going to Build the economy. We're going to create jobs. People are going to pay taxes. We're going to give small businesses a resource. And I know that sounds like, oh yeah, all that's you know all good, well, Bruce. But it's really what I live by to this day because it's it is so impactful when you close a loan for a client. They're buying a business. They're taking the risk. And they're building, hopefully, generational wealth for them and their family. It really, to me, is is the crux of why I do what it is I do every day, really. Yeah, yeah. And listen, it's very interesting to me. I mean, whatever, there's all kinds of different views and politics and things around all kinds of government programs. And there could even be certain criticisms of the SBA. But I think overall, there's, there's, there's a you know pretty good consensus that this is like one of the really good things that government's done, you know, over the last, you know, whatever, 70 years. I mean, I know, you know, anybody in business and entrepreneurship and whatever, I mean, again, you could always say maybe there's ways they could do better, but whatever, you know, there's, I'm not saying there's not, everybody loves everything as it is, but, but you know, as an overall concept, as, uh, you know, the execution of it, how many loans how many businesses have been funded through the SBA? How many entrepreneurial journeys that's launched at a high level as a whole? I mean, it's it's such a, in my mind, a great success story. It is. And, you know, I see it every day because I live it every day, right? Right. And if you look at the what the PPP program was, you know, what that did for small businesses, you know, the Small Job Act in 2010, when they increased 
the SBA 7A guarantee from 2 million to, to 5 million to allow small businesses that ability to grow and make it bigger and better. And, and just the jobs that are created, I mean, small businesses, especially I live in Florida, right? So in Florida, it's a lot of tourism, small mom and top, pop type of businesses, Corey, people that rely on the small business to help them. And the idea was really where you get them in business, you allow them the growth capital, give them working capital, you allow them to be, become bigger, and then quote unquote, commercial bank, right? Yeah. So they outgrow the SBA and now they become a bigger and better business for commercial lenders. So it was a way to take that risk from the commercial lenders, put it onto the SBA, get these small businesses to a point where they become bankable, and then they're off and running. That's right. And then, and then, and then private enterprise takes over. You know, it's interesting, but I, mean, I don't want to get too far off topic, but, but I will say, you know, there's a big debate and unfortunately it becomes so politicized on the proper role of government, right? You know, as, you know, and this is one of those areas where, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're taking businesses that wouldn't otherwise be bankable or bankable at any kind of reasonable, you know, terms, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and the government's given that opportunity to then create successful private sector companies that can be then f further funded in the private sector, you know, and, and it's, it's one of the reasons I love it. And I've seen just in, in a totally different area, you know, there are sometimes when certain research and certain development of new edge technologies, right? You know, whether it was back in the day, whether it was like transportation, things like that, or infrastructure or solar, or, and again, I want to stay out of politics, but when the government gets involved, when it's pre a time when it's commercially feasible, for private enterprise to do it, right? And creates an opportunity that then can go into the private sector once it's viable. I think those programs work. And, and for me, the SP is an example of that. So it's great. And I, and I love the way you talk about it because that's one of the things I love about working with growing companies is that it's it's not, I mean, and we have much bigger clients as well. And I love working with them as well. But the that entrepreneurial spirit, that passion, that vision to build something, to build a, a change their lives, provide for their families, and then hire people and provide and, and, and create jobs and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's fun to work with, right? Yeah. I'm obviously, it's my livelihood. So, you know, I, I, I think it's the greatest program out there. I literally think that the SBA is, is providing opportunities that otherwise wouldn't be created if, if we did not have it. So. All right. So I, I do want to move the conversation to more specifically around funding M&A and the search fund conversation. But before we go there, let's stick on fundamental SBA just for a moment. A lot of people have become pretty familiar with the SBA, but frankly, there are a lot of people who, who, who are not. Maybe they've heard of it, but they don't know the advantages, really how it works. I know there are various lenders that are SBA approved. There are lenders who can can make their own underwriting decisions and some that's that right have to get you know SBA approval. There's the way these deals are structured in terms of the level of the government guarantee. There's, I believe, every you can tell me if I'm wrong because you're the expert. I think all SBA loans require personal guarantees from the from the owners, but maybe that's not true. I don't know. But so just give us the fundamental landscape of how the SBA loan system works, how the various lenders that are in the program work, just so people have a baseline. And then I want to move more to the MA and search fund conversation. So if you take a look at the 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 SBA, which is Small Business Administration. They have a number of programs and loan programs. So there's both programs and loan programs. So they have 
the typical program, which is the 7A loan program, which lends to small businesses for you know, acquisitions for startups, for franchises, for expansions, for equipment, for working capital, you know, all the gambit. They've got the SBA 504 loan program, which is basically a program that's financing on equipment and real estate. And they'll give you up to 25 years. And the second debenture piece is fixed for, for the length of time. So there's advantages. They have the USDA program. They have the Small Advantage Capital program. They have Working Capital Express program. So, I mean, if you went into the SBA.gov website, the SBA in itself has a tremendous amount of loan programs. They also have programs through what they call business development centers at a lot of major universities right. that are set up and they have what they call SCORE, which is the Senior Co Councils of Retired Executives, which I'm sure you're familiar with and heard of. And those are programs which are designed to help small business people, not in the, from a lending perspective, but just how to build a business plan or working with mentors if you need help in manufacturing or whatever, whatever yeah. have it. So they have export and import programs. I, I, the, the, the amount of programs and the accessibility of what the SBA offers is tremendous just beyond what is called the loan programs, right? To set things straight. Yeah. But from the lending side, which we talk about in an M&A where that would fall, to your point, they have three levels of an approval process. They have what they call PLP, which is preferred lender provider. And that's a bank that can make the lending decision unilaterally on behalf of the SBA. And then you have what they call CLP, which is certified lender program, which means you get advanced timing. The deal still has to go to the SBA for their approval. And then GP, which is general processing, and the SBA makes the decision for the lender. And, you know, there's those three different type of certifications, if you will, depends upon risk, why you do things one way, why you might send a loan GP versus PLP and, and, and the like. But for the, for the audience, listen, I would, I would just tell you that the SBA is a tremendous resource not only just for lending, but, but other programs as well. But as you and I talk about, because it's lending side, that's what I do. I'll be more than happy to dive in on how that looks with M&A and the search fund process or acquisition process, which, you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people will say, well, Bruce, I'm interested in a loan for XYZ. And I'll say to them, well, that's not specifically what I do. And it's interesting because people, it's like anything else. I tell them, if you want pizza for dinner, you know, you don't go to a Chinese fast food <laughs> right. restaurant, right? Because they're right. not serving pizza, right? So there's this overall basis of, oh, well, you do SBA loans, so you must do everything. And it's not. So I like to think of the SBA query as an umbrella, the canvas. And then when you turn over the umbrella, you have all those little silver spokes. Those are the banks. Yeah. And each bank, according to their lending policy, does what they like to do. SBA lend loans are absolutely for restaurants and franchises and things like that. But you might go to a bank that doesn't really like to do that, right? right? And so then you have to go and you have to search for the type of institution that's going to do the type of financing that you're, that you're looking for, right? So, you know, I have found in, in my space that acting as a specialist 
doing one thing and being the best at that is what I can offer and the services that I can provide. So, you know, it's interesting if I get a call, what do you mean you don't do this? Well, it's, <laughs> that's okay. I'll refer him to somebody who does, Absolutely. but it's really not what, what I do. But that's yeah. the overall picture of how SBA, I think, really works. And listen, you know, it's, I mean, this goes to something that's not really in, in, in the deal conversation, but it, it could affect the deal conversation in certain ways to make companies more attractive if they have a clear niche. But just, it's smart. I think earlier entrepreneurs think, oh, I got to be everything to everybody, right? Because like that'll expand my business opportunities. But the truth is that if you try to be everything to everybody, the truth is you're, you're, you're often nothing to, no, to, to nobody, right? So to, to have a clear value proposition to say, this is what I do, we don't do anything else, right? Then first of all, the, the, the more clear you are on that, the more people are going to opt out. So you're not wasting time on people who aren't qualified, right? You know? yeah. And then when they come for you, obviously, like you said, I mean, you know, it's, it's like, listen, there's a number of things that we do. There's plenty of ways we don't do. I have relationships with other attorneys that and right. I'm going to make sure I have a good referral, ideally for my clients, because I want them or prospects, because I want to be that kind of resource. But I'm also just, we're going to do what we do, right? Right. And I think that's that's smart business. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. All right. So as you said, not only there are various programs that, that include non-loan programs, but even within the lending programs, the SBA, there are various purposes for these funds. So let's focus on the M&A side because that's what you focus on. And that's, you know, certainly right up our deal alley here. So let's talk about that. And then I want you to get into into search funds. And, and, and actually, when you do, let's define that because we have the range of we, this podcast has grown so much. Now, the range of listeners we have are some people are very sophisticated, may really understand this stuff. And some, some people are newer to deals and learning. So, you know, so, let's, so let's, let's make sure that we define our terms as well. Sure, sure. Sure. So I, I think if we started search funds, it's really broken up into two main categories, what they call traditional search fund and that self-funded search fund. And there's just been some great debates on both, but for both sides, they're, they're good. You know, it's like anything, right? It's, you have one side of the table that says, oh, I love it. No, like, Politics, right? You've got, you know, two right. sides at the table, right? You know, this one says we love things. This one says we love things. So in the traditional search fund model, it's generally where you have these programs set up across the United States, these colleges, the Whartons, the Harvards, Stanford, Kellogg, Booth, Rice, you know, some of the major universities around. They have programs, what they call ETA, which is entrepreneurial through acquisition. So these are folks that generally maybe have been in the workforce. There's a lot of folks that come out of the military. We absolutely love supporting the folks out of the military. And we have a special veterans program here at our bank to, to say thank you for those people that have served. But generally, it's people that are in the workforce, in the military, coming out and say, I want to go back to school. I want to not be corporate anymore. And I want to run and own my own business. And so they'll go to one of these programs. They'll go through the 
ETA program, which is Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition again. And they'll go through learning all the all the information that they need to run a business, operate a business, you know, all the things. And then what they'll do is once they're done, they'll go out and they'll have a choice. So either A or B, traditional search firm model or self-funded. And the traditional is, is where they're met with investors who say, okay, you go and you search for a business. We are going to, this is under the traditional, we are going to pay you for up to two years. We're going to cover your expenses. We're going to give you time to search for the right opportunity. You're going to find that opportunity. You're going to come to us. We're going to fund the majority of that. You're going to own a little piece. We're going to own the most. So a typical search, you might own anywhere from 15 to 20% of that, that business. And then the investors will own 80%. That's what they call the traditional. But you get a ton of different, I mean, it's, it's super great because you're getting resources, you're getting experience, you're getting knowledge, you're getting the backstop of your, I, I mean, just, it's a tremendous model, but it's not for everybody. Sure. Then you have what they call the self-funded searcher, which is the same model, except when you come out of school and you search for a business and you go to your investors, it's the switch. You own 80% and the investors will own 20. And I'm using that. It might be 75, 25. It sure. might be 85, 15. It's just how that works. But most of the time in the deals that I do is in the self-funded because they're going to use SBA loans to facilitate the rest of that purchase. Right. And that self-funded searcher is going to personally guarantee the loan, which you pointed yep. out the SBA does require a personal guarantee. In the traditional model, they don't use SBA because nobody's going to be guaranteeing the loan, right? I mean, right. you've got a lot of investors in there. No one's stepping up to the plate, but they're betting on the guy that they're putting in the seat. It's the same bet in the self-funded, except the roles are absolutely reversed. So in the self-funded model, it's typically a searcher will go out, he'll find a business, he'll come to me and say, we found this business. I've got investors. We're putting in 10 to 15% of the equity. The seller is going to hold a little bit of note and we want to get an SBA loan for 75 or 80% of the purchase price. And right. so this model has taken off. I made my first search fund loan in 2015 okay. when a Harvard MBA graduate brought me the model and said, I'm not coming out of school. I found this business and I want to buy it. And I just I, I, I couldn't believe the quality, the investor group behind them, the deep pockets, if you will, yep. the knowledge to the board. I, I literally just said, I, this is a phenomenal model and I haven't done anything since. I mean, literally I, I did that deal and that's what I've, I've done now, you know, since, since then. Well, you're right. I mean, you know, it brings so many elements. I mean, you talked earlier about the SBA and then score, right? And while SCORE is a great program and the retired executives give their time and mentor, yep. obviously, I mean, there's only so much time there is. They usually have a particular expertise or experience as a prior owner or executive. Right. But to have you have these folks who, first of all, like you said, usually mid-career come out of the military and, and, and listen, I've, I've seen any kind of universal statements, not uh, universally true, it's a stereotype, but 
But the truth is that, you know, even though they may not have as much business experience, you know, the folks that come out of the military, you know, the level of, of discipline, the level of focus, the level of drive, the level of, you know, commitment. I mean, you have so many, so many of the characteristics that it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. And then when you add in this extensive training in these programs, and then they have investor capital to see some of it, I'm sure, and I'm sure those investors are also bringing strategic value in addition to cash, right? There's so many of the factors that de-risk Listen, any entrepreneurial venture is always going to have risk, but you know, but you 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 you're starting to significantly de-risk this you know the, the the this opportunity. So I I love those combination of factors. I mean, I'm sure the success rates. I haven't seen the stats, but I'm sure the success rates coming out of these programs of these companies are way higher than the average entrepreneurial startup. You know, they have. You to should be. go sit on. You should go sit on loan committee at a board, uh, Corey. You'd be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I you know I I've been in this world I've been in this world for thirty five years I've seen all the models I've seen all the you know whatever and 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 I love entrepreneurs and I love that passion and 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 a lot of and I actually man listen frankly I love the entrepreneurial stories where there's none of this available and they figure it out right because those are always great stories but we also know that the failure rate is pretty high. Well, I gotta you tell know? you, you know it's it's an inch, it, that's an interesting comment, right? So a lot of times folks will will say to me and. Oh, Bruce, you know, what's the risk associated with this? They're getting into it. And, and can you talk to me about deals that haven't worked out well? Yeah. And, and I'm so super proud to say, I can't answer that question. Like that's, I think when I look back, Corey, and, and I look back at my career, you know, you do the same in business a long time. You look at your career and you pick out what your highlights were, right? My highlights for me were, during 2020 and during 2021, when the world was suffering due to this pandemic and businesses were being, you know, shuttered and the like, you know, I'm proud to say that I personally did not do one PPP loan, not one. And, and I'm super proud of that because it says that the people that we partnered with, the choices that we made, the loans that we did, the, the number of folks that we helped buy businesses are doing well. They continue yeah. to do well. Yeah. Made the right bet. They made the right bet. And they bought the right businesses. And what also I'm proud of is, is it creates that next level of entrepreneur, but it also rewarded all those people that put their blood, sweat, tears building that business yes. and got rewarded. Yes. Right? Because a lot of times these sellers will take seller notes and these people are paying on that seller note. Right? right. So they're a creditor in some way, shape, or form. And I look back at that and I say, the model works for the points that you mentioned. And when I was bringing this model to the bank, I said, here's what makes it even that much more comfortable. Not only does the searcher have to convince the bank, me, our board, but all the investors that he's going to to say, I am the right bet. Please invest in me. Please invest in the business I'm buying. Please yeah. believe in what I'm bringing to the table. And so it's not just convincing me and my five members on my board, but it could be up to 10 other investors who are 
literally socking down money and going, yes, we believe in you as well. So when you look at the ecosystem of all those people involved, the searcher is the guy to bet on. And 15 people around the table are going, yeah, we agree. Right. And listen, although that doesn't guarantee anything, it raises the odds significantly, right? That, you right. know, yeah, right. 100%. Is there any particular industry focus or or is it really all of what type of businesses are these folks buying? Any trends or industry focuses? Yeah, great question. So they're all over. You know, there's, you know, machine shops, they're SaaS businesses, they're online businesses, they're Amazon businesses, they're... You know, each bank, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, has the type of deals that they like and they don't like. Yes. For me, I am a, I'm not a want guy. I'm a need guy. So Mm. I'll give you an example. No knock to this industry, but if somebody came to me and said, Bruce, we want a loan to purchase three ice cream stores. For me, in the my thinking is is that is a want. You don't need ice cream to live. You you want it, right? I, I will tell you there are some people who might dispute you on that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> might try to argue that ice cream's a need, but I get your point. But you get my point. Or if you don't want to pay as much, you can go to Publix or I don't know other supermarkets around. No, the country totally. That totally. Sell ice cream and get it at Hopper. So for me, yeah. you know, when I look at it, it's all about. And my keyword is sustainability. That's yeah. where things start with me. Yep. You know, why does the business exist? How are they making money? Why are they making money? Why will they continue to make money? And my thought process is a little bit different than what I would say is traditional bank thought process, which is let me see the last three years prior numbers so I can get some indication of what's going to be in the future, right? Mm-hmm. I look at it a little bit differently, to be truthful, because I had a seller who was doing it the last three years. I've got a new guy coming in today. What the seller did and how he ran that business three years ago isn't going to matter six months from now. Mm-hmm. So my thought process is, is, who am I betting on? Who's the jockey on the horse? Yep. What's his pedigree? And can he get this horse to perform? Yep. Right. And so I look at it and I say, I'm okay with looking at a year back because I want to get some kind of idea of what the business has done over the last year. But I'm a huge Warren Buffett fan. I'm a huge believer in his quote of price is what you pay, value is what you get. Yes. And the value proposition for a lot of these searchers is, is if I'm buying it today, what can I do with it? How can I build it? grow it and sell it at a much higher price and multiple than I bought it today. Yes. And, and so my thought process is if I'm lending to the right guy buying, I call it the three G's of a good deal. Yeah. If I'm lending to a good person who's buying a good business that has good cash flow, I'm in. Sign me up. Yep. Right. Yep. So I call it the three G's of a good deal. And it, it makes sense and it resonates with a lot of searchers out there because that's what you've got to believe when you're buying a business. Sure. Right? So yeah, yeah. that's kind of how I approach lending. 
Yeah, and, 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 you know, and it's interesting because that's pretty, you know, if, if you, for example, speak to private equity and, and venture capital investors, right, they will tell you, and even sophisticated, you know, sophisticated angel investors will tell you that they're almost always betting on the jockey, you know, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's founders, it's management team, you know, depending on what level the business is, right? That's right. Um, it's always people. Yes. I mean, they're going to look at, they want to know what the idea, what the business is. They want to look at what, if it's a situation where it's an existing business, you know, that's, that's been running for a while. You know, they do look at historical financials. Ultimately, yeah, they're betting on the people because what they know is that, well, in an earlier stage businesses, I mean, it's a little different when you're talking about like tech startups and stuff like that, whatever. Right. But they know in those cases that those businesses are going to pivot five times before they really find the models that are going to work. So whatever's in the business plan is that's right. Is, I mean, they they just want to look at the uh, at the at the business plan or the projections or whatever to see that the founders have the right thinking that they've thought it through the way they approach stuff, whatever. But they know everything in there is never going to happen the that's way right. it's the way it's written. On on more existing businesses like like this, yeah, I mean, you want to see what the business has done, but obviously, you know, the business is going to be valued unless there's some disconnect, right? If if there's efficiency and appropriate things going on in the market, the business is going to be valued based upon what it's done historically. Well, in that case, I'm not saying that somebody can't purchase a business and make a nice living from that to continue that incrementally, but the best deals are the people who come in and say, oh, this is a solid business, but you know what? There's like these three things that I could do differently. That's right. Right. You know, I could update the branding or there's this new market I see that I can bring this into, or the owners have been comfortable in cruising along if we step up marketing be more aggressive with that or hire some more people, you know, whatever it is, they, they see that additional opportunity and that's, that's right. where there's huge upside for them and for growth. And obviously, you know, de-risk loans, it gets better returns for investors. I mean, right. Those are the kind of deals that we want to be looking at, right? Yeah, absolutely. Those are the kind of deals that we want to be looking at. Cause you're, you know, like you said, you're betting on the jockey, right. And you want to make sure that the business is sustainable. And that you're lending to a business that's going to be here. Arguably, SBA loans are 10 years, Corey, right? So right. there's no prepayment penalty. There's no balloons. It's just like a 10-year straight amortized loan. The average 10-year SBA loan, I think, is about four and a half years on the books. Because at that point, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, they're doing what they're supposed to do, right? They're paying off the SBA loan. They're going to commercial lending. They're making another acquisition. They're maybe doing a minority recap or majority recap. There's just all kinds of things that are happening, right? But this is how wealth is is created in that next level of generation. And, you know, the SBA is is supporting that and and making that happen. And it's it's just a terrific model. It it's, you know, a big part of this, as you and I know, the what they call like the silver tsunami, right? Where we're, we're living there, where you have that next wave, you know, it's the people in our age category that are going, hey, I've been doing this for 35 years. I want to now enjoy the fruits of my labor. And it's interesting because you'll have owners that have siblings or children and they don't want it. And so they, the sellers want to take their chips off the table and now this next generation is is coming in and saying, okay, we'll we'll pick it up and we'll continue with your legacy. And it's it's interesting, you know, in the hierarchy of, you know, as we, where we are today with interest rates rising, right? You know, you know, I don't know what you're seeing, but you know, deal dynamics are obviously changing as 
higher interest rates, the cost of borrowing bulls have got to get more in line for these transactions because if you're borrowing at you know nine and a half percent versus a year and a half ago where it was five and a half percent, it's yep. it's a big difference, right? So the EBITDA is is, is going to be affected. You know, it's it's going to be more difficult to pay the numbers. So maybe not as much transitional wealth will will transfer, but it's still there to to help folks that are, you know, all these old baby boomers now transitioning, right? Which makes it nice. So let's drill into that a little bit because that was the you anticipated the next place, the last place I want to go before we start to wrap up, which is what what the current you know state of the economy is, certain headwinds, you know, advantages. And I've talked about this in various contexts on other episodes recently because obviously it's, it's something yeah. people are thinking about. Yeah. Um, so there's a few things I've said. I'd love to get your view on those and anything else. On the one hand, yes, obviously interest rates are going up, and that's that's going to have an impact. On the other hand, we're we're starting from a base that was historically like, I mean, to say historically low is understating it. It's it unprecedentedly low, like practically zero yeah. percent, right? On the so even with what's been you know aggressive raises comparatively. If you look historically where interest rates are now, they're not so bad, right? I mean, I remember times when you were well into the double digits, right? In the, in the I do, times, yeah. right? Okay, so that's, that's that's point one. Point two is I, and I've said this in the last few podcasts because I did. I looked this up like at the it was actually in the, at the end of last year because you know, and I think I did a podcast, a solo cast in November of twenty one because at that point it was clear that the Fed was going to start raising you know rates aggressively, right? And, and and I and I did some research, which confirmed something I thought I had known, which was that there's actually no correlation between deal volume and interest rates. Okay, you would think interest rates go up, deal volume goes down. In the overall, order, there's no. I mean, there's been very high interest rate environments, and there's been high deal flow years <laughs> and lower, and and there's not a correlation. So that was very interesting. And the final thing I'll say is that I think you started to allude to this and, you know, you can comment on it. And and again, anything else you're seeing trend-wise, I just think we're in that period where this happens in every market, the housing market, whatever, where when there's a change in circumstances, in this case, interest rates going up, right? Buyers are going to re-underwrite and and lenders and everything, investors are going to re-underwrite, re-look at a deal and say, okay, well, I I can't pay as much now because it's more expensive. I think we're at the point now where the sellers have not yet, uh, still have yesterday's number in their mind, Yes. right? Because that's what they've been hearing. And it's it's just not that far into the cycle where they've reset or gotten real on their uh, their expectations. So usually, you know, you have this period where deal flow does start to drop a little bit because you have a disconnect between the, the buyer's expectation and the seller's expectation, then that gap closes and and then, you know, things start moving again. So I think we're in that disconnect phase where, you know, I think sellers are going to have to recognize that, yeah, it's, you know, it's not yesterday anymore and uh, and the market's going to have to adjust. And that doesn't mean that there's still not very good deals that can get done. So in any case, enough of me. This is, I want to hear your view on, on those things and also anything else you're seeing out there in terms of the market trends. I can tell you that I have not really seen a slowdown in, in deal flow. That's great. To, to, to your point, I am, I am extremely busy with deal flow. You know, it's interesting because it depends upon how the seller is going to market. If it's a proprietary deal, you know, the searcher finds the deal and he's working with the seller. It's a little bit different than if the seller has engaged an investment banker to take the deal to market. Yeah. You, you know this, right? 
they're relying on an investment banker and his knowledge and his expertise on valuations of business, right? So with SBA lending, you always are required if the deal is over $250,000 or $500,000 now, I think, to have a third-party independent business valuation completed. So you're going to need one to say that, yeah, what I'm paying is what this essentially this business is worth. And to your point, the cost of borrowing is a little bit higher. So obviously there's not enough. But what I'm seeing, interestingly enough, is the deal prices haven't really come down yet. But what I'm seeing is a shift in what the searchers are asking the seller to hold versus the bank debt. And if the sellers are willing to say, so let's say prime is seven today, but there's all indications that on the 14th, the Fed is going to raise it, right? So let's just say they do by three quarters of a point a year at seven and three quarters, and you've got a spread of prime plus two, whatever your spread is, but just to make it easy. So your cost of borrowing now is nine and three quarters, right? Seven and three quarters plus two is nine and three quarters. Yes. What I'm seeing now is that Sellers are going, okay, I'll max the 10-year term. I don't want to reduce my price, but I'll lend you the money at five or six. Right. So it's reducing the cost to the borrower, getting back to the rates, rather than having the sales price come down to help, right? I mean, so it's a little, it's right. So it's being super creative on the seller side of the plate. Yeah. Listen, there's an old joke in deal structuring that says, give me a price, I'll give you a structure, give me a structure, I'll give you a price. Right. Right? If, you, right. if, if your company is worth $5 million and you want $25 million for it, you would think that's impossible. I can come up with a structure. If I get, if I have 100 years to pay you, I could probably right. do, you know, the 25 million, right? I mean, right. You know, so, so, you know, so, so, and that's a joke because it, it's showing the extreme of it. Of course. The reality of the situation is, yeah, people that just structure, you know, that's right. Try to keep price. Yeah. That's right. And it's interesting because the art of negotiation with the seller, I, I've obviously seen a lot of deals blow up even after we've given a loan commitment, you know, working capital issues, all kinds of issues, right? And I, I talk to clients about, you know, setting up breakup clauses in their LOIs and things of that nature. And a lot of sellers don't want sure. to do that. Talk about non-compete. I mean, there's, there's, as you talk about de-risking business, you know, what factors we didn't get into, what those are. That's another probably podcast for you and on your other clips. But I always love getting, you know, getting very granular, looking at how you de-risk a business and the things yeah. like that. But, you know, from a banking perspective, you know, we obviously see rates, you know, going up in a, you know, in December. We believe that they'll go up again in January. We're not sure. But the hope is, is that, you know, once we get to a point where the Fed is going to cut back and say, okay, now it's time, things are equaling out. Everybody opens up the paper, they look at consumer spending, they look at, you know, you, it was interesting. I'm on Twitter. I had made a tweet a couple of, about a month ago, my wife and I were celebrating our 41st wedding anniversary. And so we went to a really nice restaurant. It was a Monday night. It was a, a very higher end restaurant. The place was packed. There on wasn't a, place, a seat on to a be On a Monday night, right. Right. On a Monday night, 
7.30, there wasn't a seat to be had. And even the back rooms where what up, were parties galore and Jeff, and you're looking at this and you're, you're saying, okay, is the economy, is, are they hurting? Yes or no? I mean, there's both sides of that table. And I think for searchers, what they're looking at is saying, to your point, even though interest rates are rising, if we can structure a deal, the seller will take more. If we're making the right bet, we believe we can go in and do all the things that we think we can do to this business. We've de-risked it. I've got my investors. And I've told people, make sure you're choosing on your investors because if you need a capital call, are they going to be behind you? Yep. You know, Take a look whether those investors are going to be people that you can help grow your business, you can rely on in advice. You know, you can't just say, oh, give me, give me, great, you want to invest, I'll take your money. You've got to be choosy about that. But if you add all of that to the mix, yeah, this is why business is just still so robust, Corey. I mean, it just is. I have not literally seen much slow, you know, deals volume is still really, really robust. Love it. To that, to that it. point. Well, listen, Bruce, fascinating stuff. I love it. This is not a, a topic, the whole search fund, search conversation is not something we've covered in over 200 episodes of this podcast. So, so this wow. is great. And, and the fact that, you know, this is what you do and that's, I'm sure that people are going to want to learn more. So if people do want to find out more about you and, and, and you know, everything you offer, what's the best place for them to go? You know, they can email me. I, I, can I throw out my email? Is that? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's bmarks, M-A-R-K-S at fblake.bank. And, and they can just ping me on super responsive because, you know, time kills deals, responses kills get breaks. <laughs> right. As we, as we say, so I try to be as responsive a, as I can. And as I always tell people, this is about them and getting their deal to the closing table. And that's what we want to make it all about. So that's it's great. marks at fblake.bank. Great, folks. And listen, obviously, if you're driving or whatever, that'll be in the show notes so you can check it out. So, Bruce, my final question of the podcast is always my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means freedom from oppression for all people in the world to why I haven't had a boss in decades and I'm an entrepreneur. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Freedom to me is being able to do what you want when you want. Mm -hmm. And I think that that speaks to, you know, you and, and not having a boss or being able to do what it is that, that you want when, when you want to do it. And I look at that and I say, if you're your own boss, that allows you to have that freedom. It's the freedom of being able to make your choices. There's consequences to your action, yep. right? Yep. You have to stand up for those actions. You're going to accept the consequences. You're going to make your freedoms, if you will. That's what owning a small business does. So I, I would tell you that, that that's my answer. Awesome. Bruce, thank you for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. I appreciate it, Corey. It's been, it's been my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, 
but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.